Welcome to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast, a faith community on Vancouver Island within the Anglican Network in Canada. We invite you to check out our website at ChristchurchOceanside.ca, or if you're on Vancouver Island, join us on a Sunday in the News Bay. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor, Father Ryan Matchett. We hope you enjoy. Bless you. Gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15 through to the end of verse 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to thee, Lord Christ. Well, welcome back to another episode here at Christ Church Oceanside. This week we are going through Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. And in this text of scripture, Jesus is teaching about false prophets. Now, it's actually a really helpful point in the Sermon on the Mount for Jesus to hit this because he's walked through his treatise on all of his central teachings about the spiritual life, our relational life, our um, how we relate to God, how we pray, our ethics, both emotionally, mentally, sexually, relationally, societally. Jesus has been teaching through all of this. So now at the end of all of that, it makes sense that Jesus would go, now beware. There's going to be other kinds of influences in your life. There's going to be prophets. There's going to be teachers. Those who claim to know the future politically or financially. Those who claim to be speaking on behalf of God. Those who are teaching even the scriptures and will claim new spiritual knowledge. Our day and age, influencers is not something we are short on ever. So it's a bit different, right? In these days, we're talking about teachers coming into the church. Now, teachers can come into the person or into the church. A prophet can come into the church just through influence through media. The reality is, is that most people are being influenced or discipled more outside of the church than they are inside. Even in our church, you hear a 30, 40-minute sermon. You have two hours in the church where we go through the liturgy, and it's teaching you the essentials of Jesus. But how many hours do you spend 
scrolling social media on Twitter or Facebook or watching the news. Those are far more pervasive and consistent influences if you remove things like daily prayer and scripture reading. So Jesus, for good reason, I think even more so now than ever, is saying, beware. It's a caution. Cautious because choosing to listen to the wrong prophet, the wrong teacher, or to follow the wrong influencer can actually be quite disastrous. Jesus' warning is meant to wake us up to the reality that we tend to slowly and passively follow talking heads, allowing our consciences and convictions and view of the world to be shaped incrementally by their agenda. So when Jesus starts talking about this, then what are we talking about here? False prophets and teachers. What makes them false is the claim to represent God rightly, to represent truth, or even to represent the needs of us. It's the representation that proves false. Jesus describes them as coming in cloaked as a sheep. So they look like a follower of Jesus. They look like one of us. But their inward reality is not that of a true follower of Christ, but instead is that of a ravenous wolf. For Jesus, what makes a prophet or teacher false is their self-serving appetites. And those appetites aren't low-key, they're full-blown ravenous, meaning they are insatiable, uncontrollable, and they can't be satisfied. Though they may come into the church or the flock lowly and humble and seemingly well-meaning, they actually won't be able to help but feed upon those around them. They can't help themselves but to be self-serving. The wolf feeds on adulation and power and dependence and even the finances of the church. They want and hunger for control, and ultimately they they feast on the life of other people. So what we see here is a viable threat, somebody who has ulterior motives, selfish motives for themselves to influence the church to the detriment of the sheep that they will consume the sheep. So the question then becomes, how will we recognize them? Jesus says simply, by their fruit. In verse 17, he says, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And notice, this kind of is point that he's getting at is they can't help themselves. If it's good, it will naturally bear good fruit. And if it's diseased, it's going to bear bad fruit. Fruit that makes you sick. And so here's then the challenge that we want to figure out is what is good fruit? False prophets and teachers, I know we don't use the language of prophets a lot in our everyday life, but the point being just those who claim authority and to speak for God or to teach on behalf of God are a threat because they're attractive, they're charismatic, and they build big churches and big ministries. They are probably even great Bible teachers. 
that their style or whatever is captivating. And it feels you walk away going, I, I feel blessed. And it teaches you and it helps you because it's always a mix of truth. It's real fruit, but then there's a disease in it. There's something in it that turns that good fruit against you. And they're so impressive that we can't help but think they must be blessed from God. But is this the fruit that Jesus is really talking about? Does he say you'll know them by their teaching gifting and popularity? Does he say you'll know them by how big their ministries are, how successful they seem in the world? Will you know them by how much money they have? The point here is not going that these things are easily discernible off right off the bat. The fundamentals of a healthy Christian, somebody qualified for leadership, teaching and prophesying, is really the character traits of the Spirit of Jesus. Paul talks about these character traits in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you think of that list today, do you feel like those characteristics best describe your primary influences in your life? Do they exude love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Does the ideology that you are being ingrained with Does it produce those things in you? One of the best ways to test or discern a teacher or leader or prophet or anyone that you're going to put your trust in, in authority, is to ask this question. Is their spirit the same as Jesus's spirit? Are their characteristics the same as Jesus's characteristics? Or do they have a spirit that is hateful, angry, anxious, forceful, mean, hurtful, inconsistent, harsh, and out of control? That's the opposite of the fruits of the spirit. Hear those again. Hateful, angry, anxious, forceful, mean, hurtful, inconsistent, harsh, and out of control. That's the kind of fruit that we want to be looking for. The results of these types of false teachers, the other way that we want to kind of discern and weigh whether or not it's healthy to follow them or to listen to them, is to ask a few other questions. How do they impact us? How do they influence you to relate to God? Does their influence on you lead to grow deeper in your union with Jesus? Do you feel more secure in the love of God or anxious? Do they put the weight of salvation on your shoulders, or do they put the weight of salvation on Jesus? I think the next question to ask is, how do they influence you to relate to the world? Do you feel more confident in Jesus and less fearful of the world or the other way around? Does their influence lead you to love your neighbor as Christ has loved you? 
Or does their influence create love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness in you? Like, do you find yourself more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more goodness? I think that was one of the things I saw most clearly in the midst of the pandemic when it was at its peak is you could tell somebody's ideology, what, who was influencing them and who was teaching them and who they were following by those things. Did who they were listening to create more love, more joy, more peace, more patience in them? Did it create more kindness or goodness or gentleness? Or did it make them hateful and angry and anxious and forceful and mean and hurtful and harsh? And did their life, did they seem like they were out of control? That's the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. And that's a good sign that you've been listening to a false influence that's not consistent with Jesus. I think the next question to ask is, how do they influence you to relate to the church? Does their influence encourage you to cut off or cut out the family of God? Does their influence cultivate a generous unity within the church, or does it divide it? Is their message one of judgment against the church or hope, like Christ would speak of his bride? Does their influence make you feel more special or more righteous or more pure or more enlightened or more an authentic Christian than other Christians? Those aren't good fruit. <laughs> and to be honest, those are quite common within the church when there's leading and battling influences that are going on with any inside any local church, let alone in a nation. What it ends up coming down to is, is their message a different gospel about Jesus? Who do they paint Jesus to be? And how would they explain why Jesus came and and what has Jesus done? And what is Jesus doing? And what is Jesus going to do? Because false teaching always can be traced back to some Christological deficiency. Something wrong about how they're presenting and understanding Jesus. So I want to take some time today. I'm going to try and do this briefly, as brief as I can. But I want to talk about the types of wolves in sheep's clothing that I've seen in my well, my lifetime within the church, but in the last almost 20 years of, of vocational ministry. I just want to kind of go through some of the bigger ones. It's not that this is, you know, every single type or an exhaustive list here. It's just the amount of time we have today. So I'll try and hit some of the main ones. The first kind of wolf I've seen that's quite common it comes up in the New Testament church a lot, is the legalistic wolf. In the New Testament, it was known with Paul's church plants as the circumcision party, those seeking to inflict on new Christians qualifications that are beyond the gospel. So beyond believing in the gospel. And it was the same issue that, or the same spirit that comes up in the Roman Catholic church that very much led to the Reformation. The emphasis of a legalistic wolf, of their teaching, is on the keeping of tradition or ritual for, and not that that's bad in and of itself, 
but for the purpose of achieving right standing with God, instead of traditions and rituals and things like that as a means or a participation with grace. The whole emphasis is on Jesus isn't enough. You also need to make sure you're doing these things. And anytime there's an and on the gospel, Jesus plus something, then we've moved away from Jesus is everything. And so you know that kind of type that comes in the church and wants to push those things, that somehow salvation is through a specific music style, or salvation is through doing things the way we've always done them, or, or salvation is through following these ancient practices. But the truth is, salvation is through Jesus and Jesus alone. For the legalistic wolf, Jesus ends up being relegated to one of many prophets functionally. Jesus is just there to prop up the traditions and affirm the expectations of salvation through your own religiosity. On the other side, though, a good under-shepherd of Jesus, like a, a good pastor, a good teacher, a good prophet, will always point you to Jesus as the sole means of salvation. By grace, through faith, Jesus is everything, and Jesus is all that we're putting our trust in. Everything else is garnish. Good things that can be helpful as long as they lead us to Jesus and we see Jesus at work in them. The other kind of wolf, wolf that's pretty common is the worldly wolf. Their message is one of cultural synergy with the ways of the world, leveraging scriptural truth like love and a heart for evangelism or mission or growth of the church or whatever. And they seek to give permission to give into sinful desire, doing what you know um, is wrong. <laughs> that's not truly right and good. You know that Jesus teaches against it. You know it's harmful to others. Um, and this kind of permission to say, you actually don't need to pursue holiness within your life. You can just be happy that Jesus saved you, and now you're free to do whatever you want. And so it uses language of acceptance and affirmation, but really it's just giving permission to go back to the way you were living without Jesus. And this is especially common throughout all of Christian history, especially in regards to two things, human sexuality and money. I think those tend to be the, the worldly wolf's emphasis, is to go do whatever you want sexually and pursue whatever you want financially. But it always requires compromising on Jesus's vision for a an ethic of generosity towards our neighbors and to the poor and to those things that he does not give permission to greed. And also, Jesus is clear teaching, say, in the Sermon on the Mount that we just covered, of his sexual ethic to go, actually, there's an ethic to how you live sexually. People are valuable. You're valuable. They are image bearers of God and needed to be treated so accordingly. So those are things that we see often get emphasized by the worldly wolf, is to just go, Jesus doesn't require anything of you. You're just saved and loved. Now love everything else. Judge nothing else. Never reject anything else in the world and pushes for a synergy. But the worldly wolf sees Jesus as, as being just a permissive friend. 
who never challenges, never disagrees, never disapproves of anything you do. And that Jesus isn't God, isn't authoritative, and doesn't want your growth and transformation. And that Jesus didn't actually come to die for sin, because there is no sin. So you can see it changes the true, authentic, historical, saving Jesus to one that's just, Jesus is my homeboy. Now, a good under-shepherd of Jesus, a good teacher, on the other hand, will call you to repentance, will disagree with you as your pastor when you're doing something harmful or just playing dumb, and tell you that rejecting God's Son has very real consequences, that it's no joke. So you can see, these are the types of wolves that come in and go, either it's all about religion, not about Jesus, or it's all about the world and not about Jesus. The other kind is a bit more tough to kind of get your finger on, and that's what I would call the anxious wolf. The anxious wolf seeks to identify a spiritual or practical deficiency or threat within the church and incite anxiety about it. It could be a present problem or a future problem. The threat could be inside the church, and usually what I've seen in my um, experience is that they create anxiety about the leadership, or it can be creating anxiety about something outside the church. So it's this either belief inside that the leadership has taken us down a terrible path and everyone becomes super anxious about it and they just stoke that anxiety, or they see a threat from outside the church. It might be a people group or an ideology or whatever. It could be fear of natural events or political events or technological developments or new ideologies or demonic powers, but there's always something to be really, really scared about really, really anxious. And you can go back to the 80s and go the, right, the satanic fear of, you know, the devils in every TV show and rock and roll and in board games and everything else. And so there's this fear that if you even listen to the wrong thing or watch the wrong thing, you're going to be possessed by Satan or demons or whatever. In the 2000s, it was fear of Y2K right? Coming into the new millennium. And so there's always this, now there's new things like critical race theory and and gender ideology stuff. Now, the point is not that these things don't have any harmful or meaningful impact. The point is, is that they're not a threat to Jesus. And so what ends up happening whenever the wolf comes in stowing and they're stoking anxiety It ultimately comes around to a hidden fact that they're the only ones who can protect the church, not Jesus. You got to listen to them. And the kind of strategy is what we just close the doors and wait for the threat to pass. But for the anxious wolf, they're blind to seeing Christ on the throne. Sin is a sickness we have no cure for, and they believe that the enemy is undefeated and is at the gates that Satan can steal you or your kids from the hands of your heavenly Father. A good under-shepherd, on the other hand, will lead you to quiet waters, green grass, confident trust in the person and work of Jesus. That the cross works for every sin. That the great grand story of the Scriptures is not that God is losing 
or that evil is triumphant over everything, or that we need to fear anything. Any teaching that stokes anxiety is a teaching without Jesus. Now, the next one is called the warrior wolf. The warrior wolf loves to identify an enemy, usually outside the church, and weaponize the scriptures to incite anger and hatred and conflict and even violence against them. And so at the heart of the message is an us-against-them message. And it usually includes some justification of we must hate them in order to truly love them. The warrior wolf usually begins as an anxious wolf to establish a threat and then comes in as a savior warrior wolf to say, we need to fight back. We need to do something. We need to take action. It is then that they propose some kind of war. Now, You know, a few hundred years ago, that war looked like the Crusades. Now it looks like a culture war through the 90s and the 2000s, that somehow we are at war with the world. But in reality, we are at war with sin and evil. But once the warrior wolf can demonize anyone who doesn't agree with them, because it's an us or them dichotomy, then everybody who doesn't agree with them is part of the army of darkness. That's a terrible way to view the world, and it doesn't fit with the teachings of Jesus or the hope of Jesus for the future. This is where Christian nationalism is growing, and I believe it's a full-blown heresy in our time. For the warrior wolf, Jesus has not conquered the devil and is not king, but needs us to win the war for him. Often, Jesus' kingdom, rather than not being of this world, is a specific world nation like Rome or England or now America or Canada. Jesus' teachings of nonviolence and non-retaliation and non-judgment and love of enemy are all explained away as not applicable to the threats that we're dealing with now. The good under-shepherd of Jesus, though, will lead the church to be submitted to government and authorities and to live peaceably and to love their neighbor, to spurn positions of power and empire, and will instead look forward to Jesus' current reign and ever-coming kingdom. Again, they're not at war with the world because Jesus has won already. Instead, they are envoys going out into the world to spread the good news of the kingdom through love of neighbor. Now, the last one I'll give, because I'm running out of time here, is the emperor wolf, wolf. The emperor wolf. The emperor wolf is too big to fail, sees the church and their ministry as more valuable to Christ and his kingdom than any one person. What that means then functionally within that ministry of that church is they stomp the weak, reject the needy, and exploit the strong for their empire building. The well-meaning and mature Christian loves the vision, loves where it's going, but gets co-opted into a system that will exploit them and burn them out and hurts other people. We see that. Burnout is actually quite common in those contexts with high turnover of staff and leaders and volunteers, but it doesn't matter because it's a meat grinder. We'll just find somebody else to take your place. 
growth at any cost. For the Emperor Wolf, there is no distinction between Christ's kingdom or his big C church and their own ministry. If their ministry fails, then Christ's kingdom falls. Because of this, their, the ends of their ministry justifies any means, any shortcuts, any forcefulness, any harm to other people. All of it is justified because the ends require it. And the spirit of the work is conquest instead of service. The emperor rules on behalf of God instead of serving under the good shepherd. Now, the good under-shepherd, though, does not despise small things, doesn't despise the small church, instead values it as the means of healthier church, and takes up the towel of Jesus to wash the feet of the church. They lift up and empower others, even at the expense of fast growth. They require that the people give their fealty and trust to Christ and Christ alone. And they know that the church is bigger than them. Christ's kingdom is not at risk of failing, and that health and growth come through abiding in Christ, not through usurping Christ. All of these wolves have something in common. They're ravenous. And all wolves share that. Christ's sheep are there to be sheared, milked, and feasted upon. They exist to prop up the significance of the wolf, to affirm the wolf, to please the wolf, to feed the wolf, and to sacrifice for the wolf. They are antichrist. Christ-twisting, you-focused, neighbor-harming, and church-destroying, ultimately. Their anti-good news is diseased. And because of this, Jesus ends up saying in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is not insecure about the work he does. If this is not truly of his kingdom, if it's not accomplished by his grace and his gospel, if it doesn't glorify God, but glorifies man, he will cut it down and burn it. So in closing, what we end up with, though, is a very real warning that points us back to the true, great, ultimate good. Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is worthy of your trust. And wolves have done great damage to the church and have done great damage to the office of pastor and priest and bishop as well. The reality is, is that largely in our culture today, there is no longer trust. There is no longer respect. They don't see Jesus in that office. But hear me, there are good under-shepherds out there serving in small, humble settings, doing good gospel work. Cherish them, because especially in these dark, hard times, they're worthy of honor. I can think of a number of names in Oceanside alone, on Vancouver Island, in Canada, who are just really good under-shepherds, deserving of honor, deserving of respect, and deserving of trust, because they always point people to Jesus. At the end of it, Jesus says, remember, 
you'll recognize them by their fruits. So if you find uh, a pastor, a priest, a bishop, whose ministry is bearing good, healthy, humble, Jesus-wrought fruit, honor them, cherish them, thank them, and work with them for the future, for generations to come, that healthy churches would be handed down to our children that will serve them into Jesus faithfully. Amen.